Who was the gospel, according to Mark, written to? The Romans, that's right. It's funny, when I ask the question, who wrote the gospel according to Mark? Well, duh, it's Mark. But, you know, uh, the full name there, John Mark, that's helpful, that's helpful uh, to know because John Mark is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. How many chapters, if you were listening, you heard me give this away. How many chapters in the gospel according to Mark? 16. Who gave John Mark the first-hand accounts written in the gospel according to Mark? The apostle Peter. Was John Mark an apostle? No, he wasn't. What is one of the key words of the gospel according to Mark class? Straightway or immediately? Some of you listening very well over the last uh, 16 plus weeks. Uh, what are the three synoptic gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Therefore, the synoptics are descriptive and the gospel of John is reflective. So Mark is a synoptic account of the gospel, and we know that the word synoptic means seeing together, seeing together. The Pharisees were Jewish leaders that elevated tradition over the truth. Tradition over the truth. And a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In Mark chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is the Son of God. In Mark chapter 2, we learn that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 3, we learn that Jesus ordained 12, that they should be with him. In Mark chapter 4, we learn that Jesus is the sower that soweth forth the word of God and that he brings us to the other side of life's storms. In Mark chapter 5, we learn that Jesus can cast out devils, he can exercise devils, he can heal, he can raise the dead. There was a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years, and I ask you today, what is your issue? God can solve it. Jesus can solve it. Amen. In Mark chapter 6, we learn that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Jesus was rejected by his own countrymen. Uh, We learned about Herod the coward, this King Herod, and the feeding of the 5,000 at the local desert place. In Mark chapter 7, we learn that Jesus rebuked the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the political leaders, the religious leaders. He saved his greatest indictments for the people who thought they were holy, that wore a suit and tie, and that that acted uh, like they were all that. But Jesus uh, wanted to expose the play-acting of these uh, fake believers, as it were. And we also learn that in Mark 7, Jesus does everything well. He does everything excellently, in in the excellent, in whom the Lord's delight is in. Uh, he touches blind eyes, makes them see. Deaf ears, make them hear. Crippled legs, make them walk. Mute mouths, make them talk. Jesus was special. Jesus was different. Why? Because Jesus is God. And God loves you. And God loves me. And it, it's this truth that we're trying to tell the nations. We're trying to tell the world uh, that God is love. But he's also truth. And we cannot uh, dispense of that. He was full of grace and truth. Remember that as we look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 As I mentioned, Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. Look at verse 2. Verse number 2, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, speak through me. I have nothing to say. I have nothing for these dear people. I love them, and uh, you love them too, and they love me in the Lord. And I pray that you would just help us all today. We need a word from you. And so I pray that you'd speak to us, and I pray that you bless each and every part in the remainder of this night. In Jesus' name, amen.
Verse number 8, we'll skip down there because we went through verses 1 through 7. Remember, they went apart in this mountain uh, to, to kind of uh, see uh, uh, really uh, what Jesus was up to. And Jesus is transfigured. They see Elijah. They see Moses. And Peter says some things when he shouldn't have. And they, they come down the mountain. Really, verse 8 says, Suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore. After all the fanfare and all that, <laughs> they couldn't see anything except for Jesus. Save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them. Jesus told them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. You'll remember uh, that, that that is repeated in First and Second Peter. Peter couldn't, couldn't stop remembering uh, that incident, that, that moment in his life uh, where he had seen this event and where he had heard uh, the Father's voice uh, booming, resonating from heaven. And in verse number 10 of Mark chapter 9, they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising of the dead should mean. Look at verse 11. We see the problem of Elijah coming first. This question that is based on Malachi chapter 4. And they asked him saying, why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man, that indeed Jesus must suffer many things and be set at naught. And I say unto you that Elias, Elijah is indeed come, and they have done to him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. And the coming of Elijah before the Messiah is clearly prophesied in Malachi chapter 4. And so the disciples wondered, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the chosen one, if he's the Christ, and he's the one supposed to rescue us uh, from the Roman Empire, then where is Elijah? Jesus told them that the uh, Elijah prophecy in Malachi would indeed be fulfilled. And though Jesus did not say this here, the prophecy of Elijah's coming had to do with Jesus' second coming and not his first. Remember, Jesus was born to die, and he came the first time to die for the sins of man, and he's going to come the second time with great power, and really to judge the world uh, at that time. And So uh, we know uh, that um, Jesus' power is made very evident and very clear uh, in his second coming. And so Elijah would likely return in connection with one of the two witnesses that we find in Revelation chapter 11. You'll remember that comment from last week. And so Elijah makes a cameo appearance in the New Testament, and then we're going to see him at the end of the book as well. And Jesus here drew the attention to the contrast between his first uh, advent and his second advent. The disciples were well aware of the prophecies concerning the glory of the chosen one, the Messiah, during the second coming. And many Old Testament prophecies foretell the ultimate triumph of Christ, which is going to occur at the second advent. And these include statements from the book of Zechariah, Amos, uh, Jeremiah. We're talking hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago from today, uh, relative to today. And, and Joel and all these uh, tomes, these books describe the Messiah coming in triumph to lead the nation of Israel into salvation. And there are several predictions of the time of the Messiah's uh, f- uh, full and final victory. But Jesus asked them instead to consider the prophecies concerning his suffering and that he must be treated with contempt in his first coming. Isaiah 53 predicts a suffering and dying Messiah who will one day be given life and greatness, 
Uh, Daniel chapter 9 describes the Messiah being killed after his appearance. And at the same time, prophets such as Zechariah say that this same pierced Messiah will be seen again uh, by his enemies. And so the clues are there. Um, We know um, that we are one day looking for the Lord to return uh, for the rapture. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And so the first century Christians were looking looking ahead just as we look ahead. Uh, Not to the white house, but we're looking for the white horse. Amen. We're looking for Jesus to return. And while it was true that Elijah was yet to come in reference to the second coming of Jesus, I hope you're tracking along with me um, because uh, some things hopefully not going over our heads. Uh, There was also a sense in which Elijah has also come in the person of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, uh, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his name straight. Right, John the Baptist, he was not a reincarnation of Elijah, but he did minister in a similar uh, role or spirit as Elijah. So we can say that John the Baptist was a type or a picture of Elijah. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus casts out a difficult demon from a boy, and the disciples are unable to cast out the same devil. Let me read this to you tonight. When, when Jesus came to his disciples, verse 14, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And Jesus asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, a spirit that couldn't talk. And wheresoever he taketh him, the devil teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away, and I speak to thy disciples, that they should cast him out, and they could not. And so it's reasonable to assume that the scribes criticized the disciples for their inability to help the devil-possessed boy. And one wonders why these same scribes, instead of embarrassing the crestfallen disciples before the crowd, did not try to exercise the demon themselves as a proof of legitimacy. Or orthodoxy. And this kind of conflict was exactly what Peter, I suppose, is trying to avoid uh, up on the mountain of transfiguration. He said, Master, it's good for us to be here. I don't want to embarrass myself in front of the Pharisees, right? Perhaps that was what he was thinking. But it couldn't be that way. They had simply uh, come down, down off the mountain and dealt what they found. Uh, dealt with what they had found. And so Morgan said, this commentator, we know that commentators are just commentators, right? Just ordinary men and women uh, just like us, right? And so uh, just, just an ordinary Joe uh, by the name of Morgan. Here's what he said. Jesus found disputing scribes. He found a distracted father. He found a demon-possessed boy. He found defeated disciples. He silenced the scribes. He comforted the father. He healed the boy and then instructed the disciples. And in the day, uh, or rather in the eyes of today's modern Jewish exorcist, Yes, they still exist. There are people who believe that they can cast out devils and demons today. This was a particularly difficult, if not impossible, demon to cast out. Here's why. This, is, was, this really was because they believed that you can't cast a demon out without knowing their name. You need to know this demon's name before you could cast it out. And so if a demon made someone mute or unable to talk, you could never learn the devil's name. And so this boy displayed signs that many today would probably uh, ascribe to epilepsy or something like that. But Jesus perceived that they were being caused by demonic possession. 
And so Jesus addresses the demon as a separate being from the boy, which I really like because this boy was his own separate entity, right? And so uh, this makes it difficult to believe that Jesus was merely indulging in popular uh, belief or superstition. He evidently regards this demon as completely separate and really as the cause of this boy's uh, misfortune. And so this particular case of demon possession was too much for the disciples, though Jesus had given them authority over unclean spirits in Mark chapter 6. And some demons are more stubborn. So some demons are more intimidating, intimidating than others. And so, you, you know, in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, it seems to describe different ranks of devils. And it's not a stretch to think that maybe uh, there, were, uh, di- there, there are different kinds and maybe some ranks are more powerful than others. As, as another thought for you, just a second reminder about 2 Corinthians chapter 2. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. And in context, this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is speaking of Satan's uh, uh, devices and plans uh, his devious desire to undermine and assassinate the character of believers. As 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is not talking about conspiracy theories. It's not talking about UFOs in its context. I, I, I promise you that 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is not describing very much about stockpiling a bunker in anticipation of the end of the world. It doesn't directly refer to end times as some uh, have tried to uh, place end times as this text's primary application, but it's communicating to its readers to be obedient in all things. Guard against the devil's wiles and schemes. And so uh, guard against his fiery darts and his attacks on your emotions and your ability to reason, also known as your mind. And Romans chapter 16 also says that believers are to be wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. So I just talked about devils today, right? But as we consider the false teachers um, that, that, that are found uh, throughout the Bible and even in this world today, uh, Paul told the Romans that it was not necessary, necessary to acquaint themselves uh, fully with false teachings, right? And so we're not to be infatuated with demonology or, 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 or evil. And, and evil is anything contrary to biblical truth. And born-again believers should not be naive, but we have exactly zero need to research evil to the point where we're sophisticated about it. Do you follow? Does that make sense? Right? And so uh, it's not necessary for the church to become a great deal experienced about evil. The word simple there, simple concerning evil, it means pure. It means unmixed. Right? And so uh, the simple that God requires describes someone who's unmixed about the truth. It's necessary to be sophisticated and experienced about uh, that which is good. And so we turn, uh, turn our attention to the Word of God to correct these, these problems in our mind. So it's imperative to carry a system of priorities that puts primacy on what is important and diminishes what is not. Okay? And so I, I, I just want to say that because it's really important that we just don't get caught up in, oh, well, the Bible talks about devils in this one past, and some people lean into that truth way too, way too deep. And we're not Ghostbusters walking around with vacuums trying to suck up devils and ghosts or anything. No, we don't look for these things, but as we serve God, you're going to find there's satanic opposition in your life and in my life, but we need to know how to combat that with what? The word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, right? We want to trust the Lord, okay? So don't get caught up by every wind of doctrine, okay? And so, 
Uh, friend, as a local church, we are capable of selecting and choosing what we decide to focus in on as a church. And yes, God is king. Yes, God is sovereign. And he rules the universe, but man is still responsible. We still have free will, right? And so uh, God is sovereign. Man is responsible. One of the most powerful verses is Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We want to be a church that places our primary emphasis on preaching the gospel and all the counsel of God, Acts chapter 20, verse 27. And so here's a spoiler alert for the final chapter of Mark. Ready? Mark 16, verse 15. Jesus said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That might be our Burnaby, our Vancouver, our lower mainland, and to the entire globe. We need to be a witness. We need to speak the truth in love and tell the world about Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. I think it's high time that the church of the living God makes Christ's final command our first priority instead of uh, chasing all these rabbits. And so Luke 19, uh, verse 13, Jesus said, Occupy till I return. Well, Mr. Samilia, oh, well, Kevin, I don't like Anchor Baptist Church, its way of evangelizing. You're not doing enough. If I was the pastor, I, I would try to do things a little bit differently. And friend, be careful with that attitude. That heart spirit is dangerous. One day, the preacher D.L. Moody was criticized for his method of evangelizing. And D.L. Moody was a great pastor, or rather a great evangelist, and he was known uh, for his ability to, to, to explain the Word of God in a way that was clear. Um, they said of him that he shook two continents for God. And that's, a, that's, that's high praise for any man. But, of course, he was giving all the glory to God. And uh, D.L. Moody was really confronted by someone one day, and he said, uh, Moody, man, I don't like your ways of telling people about Jesus. I don't like your way of evangelizing. And Moody said, well, how do you evangelize? And the churchgoer hung their head in shame and responded, uh, to tell you the truth, sir, I don't. And then Moody said, in response to that, I like my way of evangelizing than your way of not evangelizing. Hello, occupy till I return. Make Christ's final command our first priority. Okay, and so uh, be simple concerning evil. Don't be naive. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Um, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Wise as serpents, harmless as does. Are we going to focus on human rights? Are we going to focus on tolerance and the government and the environment? Or are we going to f- focus on being a church that preaches the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Don't get distracted. Do this for me. Everyone breathe in. Breathe in. Breathe out, exhale. Okay, if you're capable of doing that, God is not through with you yet. Okay, so let God control your life. Let God uh, focus in on and through you uh, the fact that we have a mission. We must make Christ's final command our first priority. Now turn your attention to verse 19, please. This is so much more worth focusing on than the devil. God the Father says uh, in Isaiah uh, 45, um, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is none else. Uh, th- this same Isaiah 45, verse 22, was preached by a layman. Charles Spurgeon was saved from the wrath of God because of the truth of that layman's sermon. Look unto Jesus, okay? And so because we, we know in verse 19, Jesus delivers this boy. Uh, Mark 9, verse 19, Jesus answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, 
How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring the child unto me. Verse 20. And they brought him unto him. And when the devil saw Jesus straightway, the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Instead of worrying about the devil, realize that even the devil is Christ's devil. Jesus has Satan on a leash. Satan can hurt nobody without the permission of God. And the Lord permits pain in our lives to prove his points and to fulfill his purposes. And when Jesus describes this faithless generation, he might refer to the, con- uh, the contentious scribes or to the desperate father or to the unsuccessful disciples. And uh, we know that when Jesus came near, the devil inside the boy knew that his time was short. And so he wanted to do as much damage as he could before he left. And so he, he tears him in twain, and the father of the child cries out, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. The man seemed unsure if Jesus was able to do anything. But the if wasn't in regard to what Jesus could do. This if was in regard to the man's faith. Uh, and so uh, Jesus told him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believed. When we trust God is true and all his promises are true, all things that he promises are possible. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And the poor father in this account was challenged by Jesus' exhortation for faith. He did believe in Jesus' power to deliver his boy. After all, why, why would he have come to Jesus in the first place? But he also recognized his doubts. In this case, the man's unbelief was not rebellion against God or uh, against God's promise. He didn't deny God's promise. He desired God's promise. Uh, but it seemed too good to be true. And so he says, help my unbelief. Help me. Help my unbelief. That's something someone can only say by faith. And Spurgeon again, while, while men have no faith, he said, uh, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But uh, as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. And so Jesus had no difficulty in dealing with the demon, even though the demon made a final display of his terrible strength. And knowing he must leave, the devil did the most damage he could. But it was not lasting damage. Why were the disciples unsuccessful? Look at verse 28. And when he was coming to the house, when Jesus walked in the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast the devil out? Verse 29. Jesus said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And so Jesus here reveals the reason for their weakness. It was due to a lack of prayer and fasting. It isn't that prayer and fasting make us more worthy to cast out demons. This is a big trap. And so many people try to over-spiritualize concepts until they enter some kind of Gnosticism, as if ritual opens the gateway to the supernatural. Not by rubbing beads or saying Hail Mary or anything like that uh, can uh, you get closer to God. No, it is that prayer and fasting draw us closer to the heart of God and they put us more in line with his power. They are an expression of our total dependence on him. Prayer and fasting draw us closer to the heart of God, and they put us more in line with his power. They are are an expression of our total dependence 
on him. And so Jesus gave his followers the authority to cast out demons. And, and Wearsby said the authority that Jesus had given them was effective only if exercised by faith. And faith is basically God dependence, depending on God. Faith is not a work. It's dependence on the worker. God does all the work. And so faith must be cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. Total dependence on God is the remedy for many spiritual invisible problems. To be disappointed in yourself is to have trusted in yourself. Let me say that again. Some of you didn't get that. To be disappointed in yourself to have, is to have trusted in yourself. And so don't trust the arm of the flesh. Don't trust yourself. Trust God. Uh, look at verse 30. Verse 30. They departed thence. They left and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man, I am to be delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill Jesus. And after that Jesus is killed, Jesus shall rise the third day. They understood not that saying, and they were afraid to ask. Ever have something you're afraid to ask? These disciples were afraid to ask, right? And so they didn't want to ask about this. And Jesus really reminds his disciples about his mission. He would not that any man should know it. And this is probably because Jesus did not want the multitude, or the Galilean multitude, all these the city people to cling to him and to get in the way of this important trip uh, to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And so Jesus clearly told his disciples of that destiny back a few chapters ago. And now as they departed from Galilee toward Jerusalem, they headed towards the destiny that Jesus had already spoken of. And so the disciples couldn't process what Jesus had said about Jerusalem. Uh, and, and he said about Jerusalem that here he was going to die and that he was going to rise again. And so they were afraid to ask. Verse 33, he came to Capernaum. And being in the house, Jesus asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? And the disciples, they shut up. They held their peace. For by the way, they had argued, disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And this right here was an embarrassed silence. They didn't want to talk. They didn't want to, they didn't want to tell Jesus what they were talking about because it was like a bunch of grade schoolers. They were saying, I'm, I'm better. My dad can beat up your dad. And they were, they were, just, they were just showing off. And, and this demonstrated that they were uh, ashamed of their obsession with greatness. Write this down. Write this down. If you have a pen and a pad, write this down. This will help you. Be more concerned with goodness than greatness. Be more concerned with goodness than greatness. And so here this healthy shame, this healthy sense of shame, proved that the message of Jesus was sinking into their hearts. It seemed that this was a favorite debating topic among the disciples. And they all counted on Jesus to take over the world as King Messiah, right? And the, the debate was about who was most worthy to be Jesus' chief associate. Remember, James and John. They were saying, ah, can one of us sit on your right hand in the kingdom and in heaven? Can one of us sit on your left hand and we'll, we'll be right beside you, Jesus? Be more concerned with goodness than greatness. Uh, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit, an arrogant spirit before a fall. Verse 35, Jesus sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last, last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when they, he had taken them, or taken him in his arms, he said to the disciples, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but the Father, him that sent me. 
Firstly, notice true greatness in the kingdom of God is different. It really is. And verse 35 says Jesus sat down. And this, this is key. Because when Jesus sat down as a rabbi, it meant that he was, he was trying to teach. It was teaching time. When a rabbi sits, it's time to teach. And so uh, here we are in kind of North American culture where it, when it's time for the teaching time, everyone sits down and the preacher stands up. But here it's backwards. In Eastern culture, when, when it was time to, to get going, uh, the, the, the preacher or the teacher or the lesson giver, he would sit. And so Jesus sat down. Now everyone's listening because rabbi's about to talk. Rabbi's about to drop some knowledge. And so when a rabbi was teaching as a rabbi, as a master teaches his scholars and disciples, he was really making a pronouncement. And so he sits. Jesus deliberately took up the position of a rabbi teaching his pupils before he spoke. The question at hand was, who would be the greatest? Jesus could have said, hey, dummies, it's me. I'm the greatest. Muhammad Ali was wrong. It's me. I'm the greatest. But Jesus never did that. And so uh, he, he didn't put the focus on himself. Instead, he, he corrected them gently, lovingly. For an example of greatness, Jesus put forth the last and the servant. Of course, Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. And so when he said last and servant, he was really describing himself. And he was really uh, accurately describing his nature. He was truly, first of all, that had made himself last of all for our sake. He who was very, very rich became very, very poor so that we who are very, very poor might one day become very, very rich. And the desire to be praised and to gain recognition would be foreign to a follower of Jesus. And Jesus wants us to embrace uh, last as a choice, allowing others to be preferred before us. And he sets this child in the midst of them. And Jesus drew their attention to his nature by presenting a child as an example. And that day, children were seen as property. They were seen as property more than individuals. And it was understood that they were to be seen and not heard. You ever feel that way? You're just seen and you're not heard. <laughs> and so we know that children aren't threatening, okay? We aren't afraid of meeting a five-year-old in a dark alley. When we have a tough, intimidating presence, we're not like Jesus. Be approachable. It was understood uh, that, that uh, Jesus said that the way we receive people regarded like children shows how we would receive him. Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. Children are also not good at deceiving. They don't do a very good job at fooling their parents. And when we are good at hiding ourselves and deceiving others, we aren't like Jesus. And whosoever receives uh, one of these little children in my name receives me. And Jesus is last of all. He's servant of all. And like a child, when we honor and receive a child or someone who's a servant like Jesus, we honor and receive Jesus himself uh, if we are a child of God. And nextly, realize in, in verse 38, true greatness isn't cliquish. It has an inclusive instinct. True greatness is not cliquish. It has an inclusive instinct. Look at verse 38. John answered him saying, Master, we saw... One that was not like us. We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. And Jesus said, forbid him not. Look at verse 40. For he that is not against us is on our part. Master, we saw someone. Had to frustrate Jesus' disciples that Jesus successfully cast out demons, and they couldn't. And no wonder John wanted these other people to stop. And uh, for he that is not against us is on our part. 
There are many that may be wrong in some aspect of their presentation or teaching, and yet they still set forth Jesus in some manner. And we need to let God deal with those people. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, great man of God who wrote a third of the New Testament, he saw many people preaching Jesus from many motives, and some of them evil. And yet he could rejoice when Christ was preached accurately in Philippians chapter 1. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, you see that, because of this principle of unity, it is appropriate to show kindness to others in the name of Jesus. Even a cup of water, if given in the nature of Jesus, will be rewarded. And there's also that talk about that millstone there. You see that? And that was read for us over the loudspeakers. In that day, there were two different sizes of millstones, right? There was a smaller millstone used to grind a small amount of grain, and there was a larger one that was turned by a donkey to grind a larger amount of grain. And so Jesus referred to the larger kind of millstone here. And some Christians think nothing of drawing young, weak Christians to their own little squabbles and divisions. They themselves emerge without much damage, but the little ones they brought into the debate or the argument end up shipwrecked many times. And so he, he says here, if you... In verse 42, whosoever shall offend one of these children that believe in me, it is better for him that one of these millstones were hung about his neck and that you threw this fella into the sea. And so uh, Jesus says, hey, gentleness is a hallmark of Christianity. If you want to be a Christian that shows the love of Christ, and by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, not by our dresses and tresses and musical preferences, but by the love we have one toward another. Verse 43, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. What is happening here? What is Jesus saying? It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than to have two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. And now, notice the urgency to enter God's kingdom. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. And tragically, some have taken these words of Jesus in a sense that he did not intend and have cut off their hands or mutilated themselves in some way, in some mistaken battle against sin. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. Can you say that together with me? The Bible can never mean what it... That's right. And one interpretation the Bible has in each text, many applications. I'm teaching some of the teenagers this. One interpretation, many applications. Do you realize that there are sayings in the Bible? Yeah. There are idioms. There are uh, proverbs. There are, there, there are genres. There are figures of speech in the Bible. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so Jesus was not asking his followers to literally cut off their hands. And the problem with taking Jesus' words literally here is that bodily mutilation does not go far enough in controlling sin. Sin is anything I think, say, or do that breaks God's law and God's heart. Sin is anything I think, say, or do that breaks God's heart and breaks God's law. And so uh, sin is more than a matter of the heart than of any particular limb or any organ. And if I cut off my right hand, my left is still ready to sin. It's still ready to do uh, stuff that I should not. If I completely dismember my body, I can still sin in my mind. I can still sin in my heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This was not a demand for physical self-mutilation. With this exhortation, Jesus tried to correct a big misunderstanding on the part of the disciples. They thought of the kingdom mainly in terms of reward and not in terms of sacrifice. Essentially, Jesus restates what John Mark recorded in Mark chapter 8. If you ever try to save our lives, we're going to lose it. 
if we ever try to follow Jesus, this means that we're going to pick up our cross, we're going to go down death row, and we're going to follow him. And uh, he talks about um, a cast into hell, being cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. And the word hell here is an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew word for valley of Hinnom. And so this is an area, there's a place just outside the capital city, J Jerusalem's walls, that was desecrated by idol worship and human sacrifice. And this dump was where all the rubbish and all the refuge, uh, was, the refuse was burned. And so the smoldering fires and the festering worms made a very graphic and effective picture of the fate of those who do not accept Jesus Christ. And the message of Jesus here is very clear. Now that you know how terrible that hell is, you know how terrible it is, you must understand that hell is worth any sacrifice to avoid. Therefore, we cannot think of the kingdom of God just in the context of reward. We must also think in terms of sacrifice. Verses 43 through 48, Jesus speaks of salt and fire. Look at verse 49. Everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Verse 50, salt is good. But if the salt have lost his saltness. Wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. Jesus declared that his followers will be seasoned with fire and that every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. And the salt must retain its flavor and that this will bring peace among us. And the fire here refers to tribulation and suffering. And if you remember Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Christians are supposed to give their heart, their life, their time, their talent and treasure to God. And this is a very difficult thing in our lives because, you know, a living sacrifice just wants to crawl off the altar. The, the, the old man doesn't want to die. We want to keep sinning. We want to keep looking at pornography. We keep wanting to go to the nightclub. We keep wanting to go here, do this, say that, say that cuss word, and hang out with these wrong friends. We want to live uh, in this world, but we're not to be of this world. And so uh, we, he we see here we're to be living sacrifices. We're to give God our heart. We're to give God our mind, our body, and our souls. And uh, this fire... Uh, is talking about tribulation, is talking about suffering. And these things do accompany this kind of living sacrifice that the disciple uh, has in their lives. And since the Old Testament sacrifices always included salt, according to Leviticus chapter 2, Jesus is saying, just as every sacrifice under the law required salt, so the living sacrifice that is presented to God as a Christian, as a Bible believer, right, so the living sacrifice my followers bring to me must be seasoned with suffering and tribulations. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and notice, have peace one with another.